All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 105 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm Andrew Coates. And today's guest is Dr. Michael Mash. Uh, Michael is a doctor of physical therapy, um, goes under the moniker Barbell Rehab, his business, <laughs> and uh, travels around the, well, I guess North America and probably beyond. I'm not sure exactly every city you've been to, to yes. teach your seminars. You have courses. You've developed a really big library of content's not even the right word at all, but like educational resources. Yeah. That I'm interested in. So it's one of the reasons why I want to bring you on. Plus, you've been sort of circling my orbit a little bit, going to teach at places like Luca Hosevar's um, Vigor Ground. And you, I'm noticing you're working with Good Life here in Canada. And so we're, we're interacting with a lot of the same people. So it's like, all right, it's time I got you on here. And I want to share you with my, my community. So welcome to the show. Appreciate it. I'm excited to see what, uh, what we're going to chat about today. Well, we chatted a little bit off air and a lot of your stuff is, it's about getting, getting people to feel better training and giving them tools, getting away from, I think, fear-based language, you know, not having people feel like they're broken and getting people to trust, uh, I mean, the whole barbell thing. It's not just about barbells, but there's, there is a tribe within the industry I've noticed within physical therapy that are very bullish on uh, that barbells are fine. It's okay to lift. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, bad form is not going to break your body or anything like that. There's, there's mm -hmm. some interesting nuances and, and tribal stuff there too. But I like the underlying message that, listen, if this is the way you want to lift, here's how to do it and feel great and not get broken up. But it's perfectly okay because we have the other side that is saying, hey, barbells will get you hurt. You shouldn't use them. So yeah. Let's, let's talk about, you know, let's talk about the pain side of stuff. And I, I know tr trainers, oftentimes they're very scared to talk about pain because they'll often get shouted down or people will police them on what they say. So what can, what can personal trainers do? How do they approach when their clients are dealing with pain? We'll start there and we'll expand. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's, that's essentially my bread and butter right there, because we know that when I, when I start my courses, I always ask the personal trainers in the room, how many of your clients have never had a surgery, have never had pain, don't have any pain right now and have perfect mobility. And then you watch no hands go up, right? Because the fact of the matter is pain is a rather normal part of the human experience. If you go your whole life without ever having pain, that is, I can't even say I've ever talked to somebody like that. So when it really comes down to it, the majority of pain can be worked out either around or through. It just comes down to doing it intelligently. So when I tell personal trainers and I still get slack from some of my colleagues, some physical therapists where they're like, how dare you teach personal trainers about pain? And I said, if you would come to a course or really dig into our content, you'd know that we do draw a line. So what I always say is this, if a client is experiencing pain and that pain can be either almost completely eradicated or significantly dampened down with either a form adjustment or a programming optimization that is 100% within the scope of a personal trainer. Um, we're not, we're not recommending personal trainers diagnose. We're not telling you guys to do manual therapy, but as you know, form optimization, form modifications and program uh, optimizations can go a long way in changing pain for somebody. So we teach personal trainers how to do that. This is one of the reasons why I can't get behind this, this narrative that there's no relationship with form and injury risk. And I know that's a narrative within mm -hmm. the physical therapy world, 
And I know it's not that simple because we understand that things that have a big relationship with injury risk include load management is a very, very big one. Previous injury, hydration, recovery, all this sort of stuff. But I can't count the number of times that on a gym floor, I've had a client who expressed and said, hey, this is uncomfortable, right? Or, and again, you, you get a spectrum of how people express pain. And sometimes you have to ask questions. Hey, that hurts. Okay, stop for a sec. What do you really mean? Oh, yeah. it's a little uncomfortable. And all of a sudden you tell them to put pressure through their foot a little differently, or you get them to sit back onto a box a little bit more, or they, exactly. they take their ribs, like ribs down, brace their core a little bit more. All of a sudden, oop, that discomfort completely gone. So I think it's a mistake for personal trainers to hear, okay, that hurts. Oh shit. All right. We have to send you the physical therapist. I can't train you. I can't do anything. And I don't think there's many who do that, but I think there's a lot of personal trainers who are actually scared of stepping anywhere into what they consider to be a gray area about scope of practice. Yeah. That's why I said, keep, keep the modifications hands off. And then let's say somebody's dealing with hip pain during squats. Sometimes a subtle adjustment in foot position is all that's needed to completely eradicate their pain. If somebody, somebody can have six out of 10 hip pain with squats with a narrow stance, toes forward. But the second you have them go wider and turn them out, they're a hundred percent pain-free. And I would hate to see that person get put in the medical model unnecessarily. If all it takes is a stance adjustment. Now, if the personal trainer makes the form adjustments and it just seems like, Hey, nothing's really touching this. You're still having hip pain, no matter where you put your feet, even with reduced range of motion. So if you start putting up all these constraints or all these uh, modifications to the activity and it's not touching it, that's when we would uh, recommend referring out. So I think that's a nice, happy medium to prevent over-medicalization because we don't want to put people unnecessarily into the medical model, but also we don't want personal trainers trying to dig too deep into the rehab process as well. And this, I mean, I'm going to wander off to something else we mm -hmm. sort of touched on offline, but having good physical therapists as part of your network. And I know that there are a number of people, uh, Dean Somerset's talked about this in presentations. My buddy, Nick Lamb, we were talking about him off the air because we're both, you're going to be coming to hang out at Raise the Bar where I'm speaking yep. in February and Nick's one of the hosts. And talking about developing relations, relationships and referral relationships with qualified, you know, allied medical uh, health professionals. And while I think that can be very mutually beneficial, Sometimes that messaging also is sold from a, hey, this is how you can benefit because you can get referrals from it. I mean, I've got a handful of great PTs up here in Edmonton that I refer to without any expectation in return, because if I've got something I know, okay, we've got this injury concern, or we have this lingering issue that goes beyond my ability to adjust like we talked about, then I want them in the hands of someone who I know has ethics, who is going to one of my big things with uh, with physical therapists is they have to have a background in and knowledge and appreciation for strength training. That is my non-starter. The ones who only do the passive treatments and say, well, this will heal you. Well, first of all, we know that's bullshit. <laughs> the passive treatments, he's laughing, right? The passive treatments can temporarily alleviate the discomfort as we're actively working on getting someone stronger and 100%. recovering from whatever the nature of the problem is. So having those resources to me is an extension of me. And I've sent a lot of people off various issues to the physical therapist that I trust, and it enhances their experience with me. And I become a trusted resource because I know who to send people to. So that's a win for my clients. That's a win for me. 
I'm not specifically worried about getting referral business back from allied healthcare professionals. That's not to say that that's not a great benefit. So thoughts on, on that. Yeah. I mean, the way you explain it is the perfect world and that's exactly what we're trying to do. Unfortunately, as you know, it's not that common because part of the reason why I got into this sector and why we're doing this course is I see such a divide between physical therapists and personal trainers. So you'll have personal trainers who are literally afraid to refer out to a physical therapist because of what does that physio know about lifting, right? They're just going to go to the physical therapist and the physical therapist is going to have them lie down on a hot pack and tell them that deadlifts and squats are bad for them, right? So now they lose a client and they just put their person into a uh, physical therapist that doesn't even know lifting. So I don't blame personal trainers for being hesitant to refer out to physical therapists. On the flip side, I can't tell you my first three years of practice, I actually spent full time at a hospital outpatient community um, where I worked with more 70 plus year olds than I can even count. I had more 70 year olds squatting, doing some sort of hinging, landmine pressing than I can even count. And I learned so much from that. And what I learned was a lot of these folks came into me, never exercised before in their life. I showed them how strength training can benefit from a pain reduction and from a health improvement standpoint, but I only see them for eight weeks. Their insurance runs out. What are they going to do after that? Do I give them a TheraBand that just sits in their basement and dry rots and they never use it, right? Or do I say, hey, look, I know a good personal trainer who is at least familiar with what it's like to work out with somebody that had a knee replacement three months ago or a rotator cuff repair five to six months ago. So there's this gap here. There really is. And this bridge the gap thing, I know it's such a cliche term, but it's, it's, it's real. So we're trying to close it from both ends. We believe that if you teach personal trainers a little bit about rehab principles, they'll be more equipped to work with people effectively who have aches and pains. And if we teach physical therapists a little bit about lifting, which wasn't taught to at least me in school at all, we can close that gap from both sides. And now you do have that network where personal trainers can refer out to a physio who at least has an understanding of lifting. And now physios can refer out to personal trainers who at least have some background knowledge in rehab. That's how I see it. Do you know my friend, Robert Lincoln? Are you familiar with him? Training? No. Oh, I'm going to have to introduce you to him. He's been a guest in the past. Great guy. One of the leading content creators, educational resource creators on training older adults. Um, anyway, I'll, we'll, we'll go into that after, but he's a great resource for, you know, training modalities, methodology for training that older population. And he's a really nice guy. But um, what do you say about those within the physical therapy world who are almost antagonistic towards the fitness industry? I mean, the fitness industry as a grander umbrella there's plenty yeah. of flaws within it. I, anybody listening to this cares a lot more. So our corner is not the problem, but I can empathize with the registered dietitians and the physical therapists who take an antagonistic relationship because they feel like the personal training world, the fitness industry is encroaching in on quote their territory. I'd call that a scarcity mindset. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. How many people are there in the world that we can help? It doesn't need to be a competition. Um, but I can certainly see when physical therapists get word that, oh, personal trainers are now doing hands-on care. They don't have licenses to touch. They don't have licenses to treat, which is a double-edged sword because you don't have anything that can be taken away. So might as well. So I can see from a standpoint of 
the encroachment usually comes from hands-on heavy personal trainers who are doing all of the, whether it's eye stems, scraping, you name it. That's where I see the encroachment, but I don't see much encroachment, um, at least in my circle of personal trainers doing hands-off modifications and program optimization. That's just helping everybody. Um, but yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from on that. And I look at the people like yourself and Dr. Sam Spinelli, amazing resource, a good friend of mine, Dr. Caleb Burgess, Dr. Mm -hmm. Jed Raboni. Uh, Dr. John Russon is, he has uh, the background as a doctor of physical therapy. He's never practiced in it. He's also a strength certified strength coach. And then he built uh, PPSC, like, and, and not dissimilar to what you've done with Barbell Rehab. Yeah in terms of being able to take these resources and scale to make people feel better. But I look at uh, Dr. Tim DeFrancesco, uh, Dr. Quinn Hennick, the list goes on yep. of physical therapists who have allied themselves, not only allied themselves within the fitness industry, but have become prominent educators within that space, which scales and helps in, in a good way. And I, that's the opposite side of the mindset. It's people who see, okay, here's a potential here to, to bridge a gap between our industries. So what made you go that road? Um, I think what it really came down to is when I was a treating therapist, the what I enjoyed most was the education aspect of it. I mean, you could even go the whole way back into college. When I was an undergrad and I was in physical therapy school, I was the one leading the study sessions. I vividly remember uh, we used to rent out a room in the biology and undergrad. And I would be like, all right, everybody, let's show up 7 p.m. tonight. We got a test tomorrow. And then 14, 15 people would show up and I would like draw the entire test organized out on the board. So I've just always had a knack for educating and taking complex topics and simplifying them down for other people. And that just kind of naturally turned into barbell rehab because I realized I have a big mission here. And the big mission here is not enough people are exercising just generally like 23% of Americans are exercising enough. So I want to get that number up. And I realized that one big barrier to people strength training is pain. Why would you want to work out if you hurt, right? You and I know that it's probably exactly what you need, but the general public doesn't understand this. So I said, if I can teach the people that teach the people then I'm going to be able to make as massive of an impact as possible and maybe, just maybe, start getting more people exercising overall. What are some of the keys to the language we use in, in communication around pain to get those inactive people who are fearful mm -hmm. moving and to help trainers up a cautiously approach yeah. and not perpetuate fear of movement? Because I think that's a big thing now where yeah. we do have people in our space who use language that makes people sound broken and dysfunctional. You know, we've yeah. all heard the stories of, you know, the person who goes into the commercial gym and gets the assessment and the trainer tells them or says shit like, wow, how are you even walking? Or, or you hear about a physical yep. therapist saying shit like that. So some of the keys to approaching those conversations. Yeah. How much time do you have? <laughs> Just kidding. 30 minutes. Uh, all right. I got it. I got this. Yeah. So there's a couple things that you can do. Um, one way to, and I, I want to bounce this back at you because you said approach it cautiously. And, and I think we should, because a lot of personal trainers, they don't even want to touch it. The second pain happens because they're like, ah, like that, that's not me. 
And the way to approach it cautiously is in physical therapy, we're learned about, we are taught red flag signs and symptoms. That's when somebody shows a symptom or a sign that, hey, this could potentially be something nasty going on. And as a physical therapist, I feel that it is my ethical like duty to also teach personal trainers these red flags, right? They're even in ACSM manual. Um, but like, let's talk about back pain. If somebody is talking about things like I'm having trouble controlling bowel or bladder movements, or I am numb in my groin area, or I'm having motor or sensory loss in my legs. Anytime people start talking about these things, those are things that you don't want to modify. Those are things that you want to refer out. So I like to set the stage first of saying, hey, here are the potentially nasty things that people could be saying. And if you hear those things, send them out. If you don't hear those things, then the odds are in their favor that, hey, this is something that we're probably going to be able to modify around. And in the presence of pain, there are some certain phrases that we tend to want to avoid. So one of the big ones, and this is a whole entire rabbit hole, is the whole um, unstable core dilemma. Um, there is a big push in the rehab industry right now to move away from the term core instability, because again, you and I know we have, we have this body awareness. We, you and I know that our spine is not like this tower of Jenga blocks that can just fall over in the wind with everyday movements. But by telling clients, Hey, your spine is unstable. Here are some dead bugs to do to stabilize it. What kind of message does that convey to somebody that doesn't quite have a health background? It might convey that, oh boy, my spine is fragile. And when, as soon as they think that, that one thought can set off this whole cascade of my spine is fragile. I should move through life more cautiously. Moving through life more cautiously means I'm going to have all of this increased tone around my core because I'm just, I'm in protect mode. I'm going to be afraid to twist. I'm going to be afraid to bend. I'm going to, I could be afraid to, uh, get under a heavy loaded barbell because I have an unstable spine. So we are a big believer in when we hear, and there, there's obviously people fighting, like fighting about this and calling each other names on social media. When there are two polar opposite viewpoints, the answer is usually somewhere in the middle. And that's where we like to live. Um, so realizing that, hey, yes, we are recommending to move away from something like um, using the terminology of core stability, but that doesn't make the exercises pointless. We can still do dead bugs. We can still do planks, hollow body holds, you name it. All of these core exercises are great. They can serve as great entry points to movement. They can be good for training core strength. We're just removing the narrative of instability. So that is one example. Other things, um, including... Uh, telling people how normal age-related changes are. So something like 96% of people in their 80s without low back pain have disc degeneration. 96%. That is a lot of people. And so if we can start having conversations like, hey, your hair grays on the outside, you get wrinkles on the inside, why would you not expect the same thing to happen on the inside? Gray hair and wrinkles aren't always aren't associated with pain. Why does a degenerating disc, something that happens normally, why does it have to be associated with pain? So those are usually my two things that I talk about, um, normalizing age-related changes and um, avoiding fear-based language such as instability or things like you have telling 30-year-olds that they have the spine of a 70-year-old or you have the knees of an 80-year-old. Talk about scaring somebody, right? Especially when it's coming from either a doctor or a certified personal trainer that these people trust. I could go on forever. <laughs> it, 
we have to face the fact that once we hit a certain inflection point, probably in our 20s, we are, quote, well, I mean, the morbid way to say it is we're actually in the process of dying. We are all the time. <laughs> we are constantly degenerative. And the greatest resource that we possess is resistance training, load bearing of bone, connective tissue, yeah. muscle to keep those keep you stronger and enhance your quality of life long-term. So I think it's getting more people with, and I'll, I'll use a barbell as a metaphor, and I want to ask about this, but getting barbells in hands and boots in gyms, which is why, you know, for, when people criticize CrossFit, I'm like, okay, cool. I mean, we know that, you know, maybe CrossFit's not for everybody, but I, I choose not to ridicule CrossFit. I know a lot of people who love it uh, because it, as a singular force, has gotten more barbells in hands and, hundred percent boots in gyms. And then, well, I don't know, maybe some of those people find their way to a good physical therapist after a while. That's, that's all I'll joke about, but let me regather my thoughts here. The brain fog is real sometimes. Oh, it happens. Uh, yeah. Two years of this stuff. I think let's actually do the barbell thing. Cause okay. I'm not able to follow my train of thought. I apologize guys. Like, there's a lot of language and messaging that barbells are somehow a bad thing yeah and i understand it i mean one of the places that some of this stuff comes from i'm not going to blame mike boyle actually mike boyle is phenomenal but mike has gotten away from doing barbell back squats in a athletic group setting and there may be a strong rational rationale for mm -hmm. not having a barbell on the shoulders of certain types of athletes right but we've gotten people who are taking it further to say, well, they never use barbells for almost anything. You should never barbell bench press. It sucks for muscle building. Bent over barbell rows suck for muscle building. I mean, these, when I hear that stuff, I'm like, this, this person actually probably has never trained people. Okay. I'm yeah. sorry. Like, they, they, they don't. Yes. If we're going from a pure optimization of muscular hypertrophy lens, there are probably some tinkerings that we can do. Dumbbell bench press more often than barbell bench press, probably fine. Yep. But, what what are your thoughts on barbells in general? How safe are they? And how do you approach getting people to use them in a way that they're less likely to get themselves hurt or experience pain? For sure. Yeah. So when I started this brand in February, 2016, I had, I was on a mission to make every single human I ever interacted with do a low bar squat, a conventional deadlift and a flat barbell bench press. I was like, these three exercises, these three specific variations are key. Everybody should be doing these variations. And if you aren't, then you're like less of a human than the rest of us doing these three specific variations, <laughs> right? I've since gotten away from that, realizing <laughs> the bigger picture that, Hey, these three variations don't work for everybody, but the barbell is just a tool like anything else. And it can be scaled just like anything else. And you don't even have to start with a 45 pound barbell, right? They make 15 pound barbells, 25 pound barbells. Um, it, the, it's not the tool that makes it dangerous. It's how you use it. Okay. So of course, if somebody is not adapted to a barbell bench press and you spike the load volume frequency too much, and then you get hurt, you can't blame the barbell bench press. You have to blame the application of it. Or the one that we see even more is somebody tweaks their back on deadlifts. And I went th through this myself when I was in my late teens, you go to the doctor, doctor says, well, why are you doing something like that? Why are you doing something like that? Deadlifts are bad for you. Well, doing deadlifts with suboptimal programming and suboptimal recovery are bad for you, but right. It's not the tool itself. So we don't have any evidence or research that barbells are bad for you in and of themselves. They're just another tool. Um, I think where people come from is um, it, it kind of locks you into a fixed pattern. So right from a 
barbell press or overhead press or bench press, you're locked in pronation and locked in internal rotation uh, for pressing, which is totally fine. But fact is some people with achy shoulders can't tolerate pressing in pronation in internal rotation. You right. Yeah, um, my left shoulder absolutely just won't do it anymore. So that at least horizontally, vertically, barbell pressing vertically, as long as I've got the bench at an incline and I'm not yeah. in like, I, I've lost some range of motion overhead extension on my left side. I'm also 44 and lifting for 20 some odd years. And I've been able to modify the things. Yeah. Pull-ups, overhand, wide, no. Neutral grip or underhanded chin-ups, no problem. Yeah. So I've just learned to modify these things over time. And there's some barbell stuff that I can do and some barbell stuff that I've lost the ability to do. Okay. Yeah. And same myself too. And it's like, I think people get confused with cause and effect, right? Um, people say, Oh, doing a barbell bench press will hurt your shoulder because what they end up seeing is somebody that has shoulder pain is unable to bench press, right? It's, it's like a chicken or the egg kind of thing, because we know if somebody has a hot and spicy shoulder, the barbell bench press is probably not going to be the number one go-to exercise because it, it limits your movement options, but it doesn't mean for a healthy shoulder that a barbell bench press is going to hurt it. So I think people get their cause and effect mixed up on that. Um, it's, it's just another tool. And one thing that I do want you to think about and all the listeners, uh, think about how much you can like micro load a barbell, like dumbbells, you go from the 35s to the forties. That's a big jump. But on a barbell, if you have the 1.25 pound change plates, you can go up in 2.5 pound increments, which is for the rehab process can be really good to sort of like microdose and go up in slow increments. And the perfect example of that is goblet squatting. I love goblet squatting as yeah. a training tool. I love them. But there are limits to either A, how big a dumbbell is in the gym that you can pick up or B, how big a one someone can bear that way. Like I find the flip side of this really funny because when I hear language like, well, you have to earn the right to load and you have to master a bodyweight squat before you can give it a load. I'm like, that's rubbish. I, I'm not even going to entertain that crap because Agreed. I can't count the number of times I've had someone looks like a baby giraffe body weight and I put <laughs> a 25 pound dumbbell in their hands. And there's something about that, that reference point yeah. That locks everything in place and you almost don't even have to teach them anything else. And it's like, wow, you magically yeah. now know how to perfectly squat simply by holding that load. And we're not doing anything crazy with overloading them, but there are limits to just how yeah. effectively you can overload goblet squats to maximize strength and muscle hypertrophy, which leads to, well, Hey, you can stuff in the leg press, which I, Hey, I think actually there's a lot of value in that, but Maybe we can find a barbell and we keep saying barbells. That doesn't fucking mean you have to use a 45 pound Olympic barbell safety bars, safety 100%. Squat, phenomenal tool, right? There's lots yeah. of other stuff out there. Yeah. And it's just like, if, if a 25 pound goblet squat cleans up somebody's squat immediately and immediately allows them to participate in resistance training, I'm, I'm all for it. Right. Because the goal is, I always say with the squat pattern specifically, and when I was working with those older adults every single day, my goal was this, how can I load them on some sort of squat variation on day one? If that is putting a four inch cushion on a chair and having them fold their arms across their chest and tell them to sit down and stand up, that's going to be it. Next visit. Here's a five pound kettlebell. Okay. 
you don't want to spend all of these like time and months like trying to optimize it and make it perfect when you could be loading them right now because we know it's the load that is going to cause the risk reduction for some of these nastier things of like osteoporosis, osteopenia, sarcopenia, diabetes, you name it. So it, it comes down to how do we get these people loaded right now in a safe and effective manner? And it doesn't need to look perfect because that's something you can work on along the way. I could go on so many tangents here. It's just like, um, does a, when you, when a kid kicks a soccer ball for the first time, or you put a baseball bat in a kid's hands for the first time, does it look good? Of course not. But what makes it look good? Practice. So why do we expect our new clients to have perfectly looking exercises on day one? It's because you can simultaneously load and simultaneously improve form as you go. And you hit on something. I mean, all the time we hear the question, and when I have another podcast and my co-host Bailey will often ask the, the guests, you know, what have they changed their opinions on over time? And I think I, I've always struggled with that one because I'm like, sometimes it's so gradual, you don't remember kind of some of the old beliefs. But here's one that I've definitely changed on is what you just said, is giving people the opportunity to practice and it's motor learning, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. skill development. So not over coaching it and not overwhelming the client with five or six different cues and the coach getting visibly frustrated when the client can't do it, when they can tell, and then they feel like there's something wrong with them. Like that, that's just a disaster. Yeah. So I try less and less to over coach it. So that way it's really perfect early and you have enough experience, you know, I test, you can tell, okay. If this person does this and it's not flawless, they're not going to hurt themselves. Nothing bad's going to happen. There's a handful of things. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I don't think I want to see that happening. But again, you also manage load. Mm -hmm. But you give people the opportunity to learn as they go. And you focus on maybe one simple cue. You figure mm -hmm. out that one thing that seems to make the difference of the exercise. And you let them practice it. And I've even noticed that the first time I introduce someone to a particular exercise, it doesn't go super smoothly. I do a couple sets with it. Then I say, we're going to come back to this in future. You're doing great. And the next time they come back, like magic, they're just better at it without even yeah. having worked at it. So I, I really try now to take a step back and not be so determined to make it look perfect right away and over coach the client. Yeah. for the client. And I think you brought up an important point there about the load. And this is a reason why I like to teach RPE early to clients, because as long as we're not working in RPE 910 during this process, you're, you're going to be just fine. So that's why we keep the RPE sub-maximal in the beginning. Um, not, not extremely light, but something challenging, but still like an RPE six or seven is a good place to load somebody as they're learning how to do these movements. Um, because we're just not one rep maxing somebody like as soon as they learn a new movement. So it comes down to the load. It's the, it's intelligently programming it intelligently using those sub maximal RPEs where there's enough load that it can teach, but not so much load that it's going to gas them out. Um, that's that sweet spot where they can start to learn. And just like you said, it might be that 25 pound kettlebell, just enough to, or 25 pound goblet squat, just enough to, Hey, this is a little bit of external load. This will help you. Um, understand a little bit better, like things like bar path during the squat and bar path during the bench press. You just can't teach that with an empty barbell. It kind of, you need a little bit of load to figure out how that works. Um, so that's something we always do in our courses where I have to make this big uh, statement that says, all right, guys, we are big fans of not overcoaching. 
But since we're in a seminar today, we're going to pick apart every little thing. Just know that this is not what we are doing or recommending on the gym floor. And then we'll get these people that some of the people that have come to our course are high level lifters. And then some people in that same course have never lifted in their life. And we'll get to the group, myself and my instructor, where somebody is new to barbell lifting and they do the lift and they sit up, they're like, all right, what, what, all, what kind of cues do you need? What kind of, what should I work on? And we just end up saying, I think you just need some more practice, right? Get some more time under the barbell and things usually sort that's sorted out. And I like relating it to other skills. It's funny. Like I figure a lot more people would play musical instruments, but every time I ask a client, you know, if they play any, a musical instrument, they're always like, no, no, <laughs> any skill, any exercise is really just like developing a skill like that. I mean, anything driving, playing mm -hmm. guitar, playing piano, et cetera. You're going to be terrible at it when you first start. Yeah. And it's just, we see the same thing. Like, so I'm a piano player. Um, but I tried to learn guitar once unsuccessfully. Uh, I ended up just going back to the piano. That's a different story, but I real like I did too much too fast too soon. And then my freaking fingers hurt, man. Like from trying to push that, like I didn't have the calluses on the tips of my finger that were needed. So like you see this, these adaptations outside of the lifting, like musical adaptation. So it happens. It's, it's a universal principle. If you've never played guitar and then all of a sudden you try and play two hours a day, every day, your fingers are going to hurt. So it, that doesn't make the guitar bad. It just means that you should probably be a little bit smarter about how much time you're doing in the beginning. And we, we know that people who are just starting out, who've never lifted before, they don't need big doses no. of resistance at all. Beginners will progress. I mean, even if their form is spotty, and they're doing random stuff, they're actually going to make fairly significant strength mm -hmm. improvements. I mean, the initial strength improvements are also going to be motor learning anyway. Mm -hmm. it's, it's still heavily skill development. But you give them a few months, and, and if they're eating enough, they'll put on some muscle, they'll, yeah. they'll get stronger. And hopefully by that point, they've developed the skills where it can translate into long-term progress. Yeah, and we use similar tactics for rehabbing somebody when they're dealing with pain. Um, some things we'll do, like... I always use the example of somebody that's having shoulder pain, like on international chest day, let's say somebody goes into the gym on Monday and they're doing five sets of 10 to failure on some sort of pressing exercise and they have shoulder pain. When I'm working with somebody or I'm teaching coaches, I always say change as little as you need to in order to get the desired effect. In this case, it's going to be like decreasing pain. And oftentimes doing the lift less volume overall, but more frequently can be beneficial. So instead of doing five sets of 10 on Monday to failure, we will often recommend trainers. Hey, let's switch this up. Take the lift that hurts. Don't do so much volume in one day, but split it up over the week. And it seems that the body adapts really well, especially when in pain to smaller bite-sized pieces, um, rather than that large bolus at all at once. Something that just popped into mind too, because I was um, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Las Vegas for an event that Joel Jameson did and Mike Roberts was there. And Mike is a really smart, influential guy when it comes to moving pain-free. And I think for a long time, I've been in the industry long enough to remember when foam rollers were, foam rolling was the rage. And this was mm -hmm. the stuff that was breaking up adhesions and scar tissue. And oh yeah, this is fixing every mobility thing. And then the pendulum swung the other way, which I'm still seeing some of this where they're completely useless. They, they, I mean, we know that yeah, there's no long-term adaptations happening from a foam rolling session. But I think the sweet middle ground, and this is something that I'm guessing you guys do. I know the PPSC does it. I know uh, Mike Robertson does it with his R7 stuff. 
and a little bit of foam rolling, maybe a minute to two minutes on a, a sort of a tricky area or the area that you're working can do wonders to just feel better, get things nice and loose and buttery. And I had been neglecting it for a while. I'd done it before, but I just, with that prompting from Mike, I sort of jumped back into it. And I noticed an immediate difference in terms of just how things feel. Yeah, it's warming you up. It's relaxing the neural tone of that sort of tense area, which is the primary effect. And if you move better, you could load discomfort yeah. free. Well, shit, the quality of that lifting session is improved. And if you're gaining access to range of motion that you otherwise weren't, well, that's a key way to enhance, re retain mobility long-term. So it's a piece of a bigger puzzle for the long-term adaptations we're actually looking for. So yeah. I'm at the point now where I'm more and more and thinking, okay, cool. You know, hey, it's not that half an hour, 40 minutes of band distractions and, and, and stretching and this and that. And then you get into your left spine and then you do eight sets of body weight before you can put a load of barbell. Yeah. But it's, it's a couple of minutes of foam rollings for some really key areas. With this shoulder, what I've noticed is if I'll foam roll my lats and, and get into my pec, but get into my lats especially, then all of a sudden, wait a minute, I, my shoulder has more mobility than usual. And I feel good doing some things that sometimes cause me problems. So that alone, I find is a really good way. And I think that you can pass that along to all your clients. If you get yeah. them to do this and train them to do it before you guys get started or have them do it in between the light warm up stuff, it'll just improve the quality of their session. Yeah. And I think what's important here is, is that happy medium? Um, because just like any tool, it has its pros and its cons. If if a little bit of foam roll, if a few minutes of foam rolling or targeted foam rolling instantly allows somebody to feel better and more and participate more effectively in their resistance training program, I'm all for it. Um, it's just, just like anything, it needs to be used responsibly. If people find that they start needing more and more of it, so maybe at first a couple minutes worked, but then you need longer, five to 10, 10 to 15, and then that doesn't work. And then you need to use to the PVC pipe. And then the PVC pipe, you move to the rumble roller. Like if people get caught, what I like to call the foam roller trap, which I was caught in, if you keep needing longer and longer duration and a rougher and rougher stimulus to get the same desired effect, that's when it would be time to zone out and be like, all right, what are some other factors that could be contributing to my pain experience here? And am I using a form, a specific type of form that doesn't quite jive with my body type? Am I using a specific um, type of exercise that doesn't quite jive? What are my overall stress levels like right now? So it, it just comes down to using them with intent and using them responsibly. If it's a couple minutes that instantly improves your workout, 100% on board. But if you start to find your clients in this trap of more, 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 harder, 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 longer, longer, longer. Then that tells me, hey, that, let's zone out and maybe find a different way to go about it. And we probably have recovery issues. We probably have load management issues, all mm -hmm. of the stuff that we referenced earlier. So, yep. Suboptimal stress management techniques. It all matters. Okay. Let's sort of quickly touch on the development of the seminars. In particular, I mean, I'm more and more see coaches who are interested in scaling brands scaling their ability to affect more people mm -hmm. leading into educational content etc any words of wisdom for someone who's looking to start you know, teaching what they know about movement or you know, career success anything like that from from the lens of someone who's been doing it for a while yeah um first i would say figure out exactly who you want to help so when i started barbell rehab i was confused as to whether i wanted to help 
like the people working out, or I wanted to help the people that help the people that work out. So in the beginning of Barbell Rehab, I always had mixed messages. It was like, oh, this post is going to help Joe Schmo squat better, but this next post is going to be to teach a coach how to be a better coach. And mixed messages back and forth really didn't get my point across. It wasn't until I 100% niched down to I help coaches and clinicians improve the management of people in pain that things really took off. Now, I realized that the starting point, I needed that, right? I couldn't have just come out and coach, coached coaches without coaching people first. So it made first, it made sense at first to have these mixed message. But once I felt confident enough, all right, I've, I've helped a ton of people. I, I think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I think I'm ready to help other people. Let's be very distinct in the message. I help coaches and clinicians improve the management of clients in pain. And then everything you do social media wise. Oh, there you go. I got I got my cat taking a nap right here. <laughs> um, everything you do social media wise should be directed at helping coaches. This tip is going to help a coach be a better coach. So being very distinct in your messages. And then number two, I would it would have to do with the whole imposter syndrome thing. Here's the thing. If you're out there listening to this and you have imposter syndrome, congrats, because it means you're a human. It means you care. Um, and one thing that like the stuck with what I, I saw John Goodman say this online, he's like, the only people that don't have imposter syndrome are the real imposters. Um, so that it really matters that you have to learn how to dance with it. You have to learn how to accept it as a part of you and don't listen to it anyway and just keep pushing forward. So those are my two tips. It's like you're pulling the stuff out of my brain. It's like the people who don't have imposter syndrome or have never experienced it, because I think you can move past it to a degree. Yeah, uh, for sure. They scare me. They they actually scare me. And they're like, I don't want to say they're all sociopaths, but it's just <laughs> like where it's like, like you said, if they don't care enough to be worried whether what they're doing is is good enough, yeah, so that's a big red flag to me. And yeah. yeah, my cat Ozzy came near enough for me to scoop him up. He's funny. So a lot of cats like being on keyboards in the way. Ozzy doesn't like being on camera. It's kind of weird. So he's trying to like fight, but I've got him here. So he, he's actually, oh my gosh. Like that, where a lot of cats want, I mean, he's, he's always fun to go Whenever I'm recording, he's sitting on a case of water bottles just behind the laptop where he's, he's doing shit to try to get my attention, but he won't 100%. walk in front of the camera. Right, buddy. Oh, yeah. Now he walks. There you go. I, uh, I never in a million years thought I'd be a cat guy. And then I got married and now I have three cats. So that's, that's where we're at. <laughs> I just the one. Let's tell people where they can find more of your media um, and you know about your seminars. If yeah. you've got any coming up, anything like that. Sweet. Yeah. So I am most active on Instagram. Handles easy at Barbell Rehab. I try to answer every DM. So come check the page out. Send me a DM. Introduce yourself. Would love to chat. Um, I'm not even going to plug any other social right now because mainly Instagram's where it's at for us. Um, and then everything that you could possibly learn about our company is on our site, barbellrehab.com. We have three online, we have four online courses and one two-day live certification course, the Barbell Rehab Method Certification. We have 21 of those scheduled through May already of next year. Um, the majority of them are in the United States. Um, we have one in Halifax in February, working with Good Life Fitness to schedule more in Canada. And then we're also going to be in London, UK, and in Nuremberg, Germany in April. So it's all up on the site, barbarehab.com. Cool. I wonder if it'll be at the club that my uh, good friend Adam Lonigan runs. Ooh, it's so a lower Sackville, I think. 
I'm not sure which one he's at. He's an old yeah. buddy of mine. He used to be the general manager of the commercial gym that I used to work at. Great dude. Moved back out east, and he's a GM of a good life there. So either way, when it comes up, maybe we'll chat. Um, again, he's not the personal trainer, so he's probably not going to be in there anyway. But just yeah. that's how small the world is. And uh, and Eric, who is uh, you know basically the director of personal training through all of Good Life, he's uh, the person you've been working yep. uh, closely with. And I met him at Raise the Bar last year. And so we chit chat. And he actually, I was already bringing you on anyway, but he messaged me out of the blue. He's like, hey, you should get uh, Michael <laughs> on your podcast. So it's nice to see how the industry supports and, and shares each other. A lot of that behind the scenes. Everybody listening, guys, go check out uh, Michael's stuff, please. Go follow Barbell Rehab. And Michael's going to come and hang out at Raise the Bar in February, the end of February yep. in Dallas. So if you guys want to, I mean, that's, I got a couple of events coming up right away here. I'm literally flying down to Scottsdale for the Fit Biz Mastermind. But one I'm really pushing for everybody is come put Raise the Bar on your radar. Come hang out. Come hang out with us. Uh, you're going to see a world-class lineup of speakers. And uh, I hope we'll see you there. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Andrew.